Well, good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. Uh, glad to have you here. Um, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in chapter 16 to 25 again this morning like we were last week. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, if you forgot your Bible, didn't bring a Bible, if you throw your hand in the air, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, for sure get your hand up so you can take this home as our gift to you. Grab a copy of God's Word. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I was thinking back to uh, my time in, in college, and, and there was, when I went to school out west, we had this one dorm room, and it was really four dorm rooms surrounding a common room with two bathrooms. And so there was eight guys living in this little house uh, kind of thing, and, and because we were eight guys living in that house, we didn't take great care of it. And so um, after weeks would go by and smells would start to emerge from that place, and, and what would happen is this one of our roommates, his name was Ron, Ron's mom would come by every so often she'd show up to visit for a weekend and she would come in and then that pile of dishes that was piled on top of the pile of dishes. Now, you gotta remember, we didn't have a kitchen in this, so those dishes were in the bathroom, right? They're on the back of the toilet. I know, gross, right? We were guys. We were 17 and 18-year-olds. This is what you do, right? They were in the sink and it was dishes on dishes and, and she would come in and she would clean that up and she would transform our bathroom from this, this musty, disgusting, smelling, toxic waste dump and she would make this thing beautiful. She would then work her way into the common area and she would, she would clean up in there too. She would clean up all the, the papers and pizza boxes and food that was left over that had gone way beyond the stage of a science project, right? And she would take all of that and, and when she would leave, the place would smell better. It would look better. As an added bonus, what she would do, she would leave behind these plastic ice cream tubs filled with homemade cookies, all right? This was an awesome mom. We all wanted to be adopted into the family somehow. And, and here's the thing, when she would leave, the place was different. If, if, you, if you went away for the weekend and you came back and you weren't there all weekend, you knew that Ron's mom had been there because her presence made the place different. If I came back after a weekend away and I stepped in and the place still smelled, still looked gross, and Ron said, hey, yeah, my mom was here for the weekend visiting, I would say, no, she wasn't. There's no way she was here because when your mom shows up, things change. Her presence changed things. It wouldn't still look the way it looks now. And, and listen, this is what Paul's been going at in these verses here in Galatians. He says, when Jesus comes into your life, there's proof that he's there. Your life will change. Things will look differently. There are certain things that won't be there anymore. There are other things that will, that will take place in your life that will start to spring up in your life because Jesus is there. My, my attitude, my actions, my words, everything will change because Jesus has taken up home in your life. Now, Galatians, Paul's been so clear writing this letter to the Galatians and to us that, listen, those actions, those things you do, those don't bring you into right relationship with God, right? They don't make you a new creation. It's not, hey, be like Jesus so God will accept you. No, it's bring your mess in humility, in repentance, which just means turning. It means I'm not gonna go the way I was going. I'm gonna turn now and pursue after Christ. We bring our lives to him, messed up and humble, and follow Jesus as the Lord of our life, and Jesus steps in and you are changed. And listen, it will be obvious that Jesus has shown up. 
There'll be these things, Jesus in John 15 and, and Paul here in Galatians 5 calls it fruit. There's gonna be this fruit, this evidence that you're planted somewhere different because your, your roots have now been changed. You're gonna produce different fruit, right? Last week, we walked through the works of the flesh. Here's the evidence of roots planted in the flesh, planted in you're doing your own thing, your own way without Jesus. It begins to show itself, right? But when you turn to Christ, Christ grabs a hold of your life, you will be different. Fruit will appear. Now for this to happen, for this, this, um, this change to happen in your heart and in your actions, listen, we need a changed heart. If you're taking notes this morning, there's our first point. We need a changed heart. Because here's the thing, it's not behavior modification that we're, we're working on here. It's, it's not this outward thing, if I do all these things. No, we need a new heart, not new behaviors. We need a, a new attitude, not just new actions. We need a new heart. We need a, a new inside, new motivation, new love. And what happens is when that comes in, when that change happens, it produces new behavior. It brings about new actions. We need a new heart. In fact, Paul says in verse 16, if you get your Bibles open to Galatians chapter five, he says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's saying you need to walk by the spirit. This isn't something you can do on your own. It's the spirit coming in. We need God's strength. We need God's power to see this happen. Now, why is that? Why do I need God's strength to have this changed heart? Because it's impossible to, pr to produce this on my own. Jesus says in John 13 that, that we're to love people as Jesus loves us. What's that look like? That means sacrificially. That means without being loved in return. That means loved completely. I mean, think about how impossible it is to love that way. Think about how, how difficult it is to even consistently do that within a marriage relationship, let alone Jesus calling us to do it with our enemies. We're called to love in this way that's impossible to do. Ephesians 5.20 says that we're to give thanks for all things. I can give thanks for good things, and even then I'll forget a lot, right? But no, no, we're called to give thanks in all things, even the difficult things. It's impossible to do. Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I love that it says, again, I say rejoice. It's the only command that's repeated. It doesn't say, hey, don't murder. And again, please don't murder. Why? I think because we find it hard to rejoice in all things. 1 John 2.6 really sums it up when it says this, be like Jesus. Walk like he walked, it says. And we can't do it. We need help. So what God promised us then, he said, listen, I'm going to live in you. I'm going to walk with you. And so we're told here, walk by the Spirit. Walk in step with the living God who as a Christian, he dwells in you. And your heart has changed. We need God to produce that fruit because we need our hearts to change. Here, here's the other reason why we need the Spirit to change our hearts. We need the Spirit to change our hearts. We, we learned from last week because we are in a battle. You stepped into a war. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light in a battle. And just think about what happens in your own life when you take a stand spiritually. 
I mean, last week there were people who, who physically made a move. They said, I'm going to come forward. I'm going to get on my knees just to show a heart that's humble before the Lord because there's things in my life that aren't lining up and I want the works of the flesh dealt with. So I want to do what Jesus said. And he says, I want to humble myself before him. I want to come to Christ. James 4, 6 says, to resist the devil, he'll flee from you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to come forward. And what do you do? You threw a punch basically at the enemy, right? And I talked to many of you. Last week was a hard week. You, you made a move. You kicked up dust in the battle, and it was difficult. Those who got baptized two weeks ago, many have talked to this. Man, I take this stand. It's, and what's baptism? Baptism is a public stand saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I want everyone to know you're kicking up dust in the battle. You're attracting more enemy attack, really, right? And people say, man, after baptism, it's like things got harder, not easier. We're in a battle. We're in a battle. Here's the thing, we can't fight Satan on our own. Satan hates you, Satan hates your family, he, Satan hates your kids, Satan hates your church, Satan hates your small groups, but, but the fight actually is because Satan hates God and that's the level at which it needs to be handled. I mean, we're told in Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Right, James 4, 7 says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But how does it say to do it? It says, by humbling yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. The battle is Lord's. Proverbs, it says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. We need God's spirit. We need God's spirit in this battle against the enemy, against Satan. But here's the thing, the fight's not just against Satan, it's also against our flesh. Our own hearts are in this battle. I mean, think about it. How many here struggle with sin? Awkward question. How do you, do I raise my hand for that? Is that it's kind of that weird question to answer. You look around, is everybody else doing it? Okay, I do too, right? Those who are like all about the gospel, like, yeah, right here. Sinner, got that one covered, right? But here's the thing. We all battle with sin. And all the religion in the world can't take care of our sin problem. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, says this in Romans 7. He goes, I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. He goes on, he says, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's within me. Oh, what a wretched person I am. I mean, can anybody relate to that? See, man, I don't understand myself. I, I wish I didn't do the things I do. And we all struggle with this. Now, now, here's the thing. If that was it, if that was the Christian life, then it would be brutal. We'd be saying, like, just take me home, Lord Jesus. I'm just waiting for death when the battle's over. I mean, I just want to live defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. But that's not the end of the Christian story. By every indication of Scripture, our lives are supposed to be characterized by victory, not defeat. Is there grace? Yes, there's grace when we fail, because we will fail. And there's grace for when we do. But there's also victory. 
The spirit of the living God dwells in you if you're a Christ follower. If that's the case, we should be overcoming a lot. I get the why then. Okay, why? I've got the spirit in me. But, but how do I walk by the spirit so I can experience this victory? How do I walk by the spirit so that, that I, I can have this changed heart be shown in fruit? Spiritual fruit. Well, look what he says in verse 16. He says, walk by the Spirit. Look at verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So Paul's laying it out for us. He goes, hey, listen, walk, be led, live in. It's, it's this life lived following Jesus. It's, it's more than just a Sunday morning, I'll give an hour and a half-ish to Jesus kind of thing. It's more than just, well, I'll also give maybe two hours for a small group. No, it's a life lived by the Spirit. Everything changes now. It's the difference between being a churchgoer and a follower of Christ. You know what I'm saying? It, it's the difference between being a Christian by name and a Christian by your life. We walk by the Spirit. We follow the lead of the Spirit where we would say, Holy Spirit, what do you have for me today? What do you want me to do in this decision I'm facing? This temptation's coming my way. Which way should I go? How do I respond to this? And then what do we do? We follow. We obey. And we live out this gospel-driven obedience and by doing it, we experience victory and joy because we're following the Spirit of God. So my question this morning is this, are, are you walking by the Spirit? If you are walking by the Spirit, Jesus will be greater and greater in your heart and your life. You'll see him more and more. The Spirit will always point to Jesus. The Spirit will always be pointing you to the gospel, to the truth of who Christ is and who you are in Christ. This morning, we need a changed heart. Here's our second point, by the gospel. We need a changed heart by the gospel. I mean, if we, we want this new life, it begins by understanding and responding daily to the gospel. That's where it begins. So if we're gonna talk about the gospel, let me jump into two theological terms. Maybe I'm introducing you to them or, or just reminding you of them. The first term is this, our Justification. If we want to have this gospel transformed life, we need to understand these justification. That's us being declared holy by God. Listen, the gospel says that when, you, when you've responded to the call of God in your heart, when you've been changed by God, you've been justified. Way to remember, right? Just as if I'd never sinned. Right? God sees you just as if you always obeyed the law perfectly like Christ. It's this thing that theologians call the great exchange where I bring my sin to the cross and God gives me Jesus' righteousness. Think of that. Christ lived the life that I was supposed to live and then he died the death that I was condemned to die. And because of that, God now looks at you because if that's where you are, God looks at you and declares you righteous in Christ. Not because of your behavior, not because of your righteousness, but because God credits you with Christ's righteousness. That's justification. That's where you stand before a holy God if you know Christ. Now the, the other theological term is sanctification. That's being made holy. So, so it means, hey, this is who you are. This is your legal standing. Now in sanctification, you're gonna live this out. You're gonna become who you are. 
And we need to keep these separated in our mind, all right? Justification and sanctification, they're not the same thing. Justification are legal standing. Declared righteous. God, God sees you through the lens of the cross. When he sees you, Christian, he sees Jesus. And sanctification is God's spirit at work now making you more like Jesus. You living out the truth of your justification. Right, and this, this is a, a lifelong process. Yes, yeah, sometimes it's quick. Sometimes there's this radical change that happens. Most of the time, though, this process of sanctification is slow. Right, the Bible talks about like trees and, and babies growing and, and here in this text, fruit that grows. And listen, apples don't just pop out of the tree super fast, right? There's this growth. Now, I know that because I've got a flower garden in my front of my house and I love this thing, but I'm super impatient. I come out every day. Flowers yet? Oh, man. The next day, where are the flowers? Oh, not here yet. Flowers yet. Right, I'm just, I want them to, to just appear, but they don't, right? They take time to grow and to appear. And that's like our walk in sanctification. There's a process, and we need to keep justification and sanctification separate. I mean, the whole letter here from Paul to the Galatians saying, hey, don't base your hope on the process you're in, on your behavior, on what you're doing. It's on justification. And your justification isn't based on how good you are. You aren't declared righteous because of your good works. You're declared righteous because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Let's not confuse justification and sanctification, but here's something that's important. As much as we don't want to confuse them, our sanctification needs to be rooted in our justification, rooted deeply in it. As you live your life immersed deeply in the truth of who you are in Christ, in your justification, what happens is you desire that I want to live out that holiness of who I am. And your, your growth, your sanctification, it just comes from just constantly dwelling on your justification as you go deeper into the gospel. And that's why I would say this a lot, preach the gospel to yourself every day. The journey of growing in Christ always comes back to that first step. You've been changed by Christ. And the problem is we forget that, don't we? We think, well, I gotta move on to deeper things, to, to greater things, and we forget who we are in Christ. We forget that we've been made new. And we fail to grow because we no longer remember God's love for us in the gospel and who he's made us to be. I would say this, the ones who change the most sanctification are the ones who recognize that who they are before God doesn't, isn't based on their change, their justification. So when you wanna grow in your faith, you wanna be growing, dwell on your justification. It's the most essential part of what it is to grow. You wanna grow, focus on the gospel. And you might hear all this and say, wait, 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 wait. If that's true, if you preach this, that it's all about justification, that you're saved by grace alone and faith alone, and it doesn't matter what you do, people are gonna go and do whatever they want. They're not gonna follow Jesus. You know, the, the, the Church of England said that to John Bunyan. They actually put him in jail for preaching this gospel message. And they said, hey, John, he's the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. They said, John, if you preach that people, if, if you just keep preaching that, that they can just it's a free gift in Christ that the salvation's a free gift. They'll go and do whatever they want. And Bunyan said, no, if they grasp Christ's righteousness has been given to them entirely as a gift, they'll do whatever he wants. 
When you start to understand your justification that you've been saved by faith, by grace alone, you're gonna do whatever he wants. Your prayer begins to be, Spirit, what do you want for me today? You walk by the Spirit, you, you grow in love for the gospel and spiritual fruit is gonna be a natural result of that falling in love with the gospel. In fact, I heard a pastor say it this way once. He said, spiritual fruit grows the same way physical fruit, babies do. It comes about in the exact same way. It's produced in the same way. Think of it this way. I, every Saturday morning, I make pancakes for my kids. That's kind of our little routine. I get up, I make pancakes, and I, I've got this, the best recipe ever for the fluffiest pancakes ever, but I gotta follow that recipe, right? And I gotta be careful. I gotta put the right amount of flour, the right amount of salt and sugar and, and milk and melted butter and eggs. I gotta mix it all together right. I gotta think about the ingredients as I'm doing it. Making a child is not like making pancakes, right? You don't focus on the recipe when you're making a child. Your, your husband and wife aren't coming together and they're thinking about, oh yeah, so DNA is gonna be passed and chromosomes are, are splitting and, and that's how it goes and that's not how it works, right? Like I don't wanna go into any more detail. We'll move from a PG-13 sermon further away from that, right? But you get what I'm saying, right? A child's not produced that way. It's not like a recipe. Physical fruit, a child is produced, what? As a result of a loving, intimate encounter between a husband and wife. And it's the same thing with spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit begins to be produced. Not when we go, oh, I gotta get the recipe for how to grow love. What's the Greek word for love? Oh, it's agape. Okay, now I know that. I gotta study it more. And love's gonna, oh, and what about peace? Oh, I don't know the Greek word for peace. How do I grow in that? I can't figure that. That's, that's not how we grow in the fruit of the Spirit. No, it grows because you've had an intimate encounter with the gospel, because you've grown in love with Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And as your heart grows deeper in love with the gospel and Jesus becomes more and more and more of what your heart looks like, the spiritual fruit will begin to grow. It will come as naturally as an apple grows on an apple tree. Last week, we saw this from the negative side, right? We saw the works of the flesh. And, and what do we need to do? I said, we gotta dig underneath the, the, into the root of what's causing that, that sinful action. I'm going after this thing. Why am I doing it? Well, what's beneath it? What's the root? What am I putting my hope in? What am I hoping gives me life and meaning and purpose? That's what's driving me to that. What part of the gospel am I missing? Have I forgotten? And, and so what do we do? We come back to the gospel daily. The gospel that says that we deserve the wrath of God, but instead of God giving it to us, God in his love, he emptied himself, came to earth to rescue us by dying on a cross in our place. Paul says it clearly in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The crucifixion, it happened where we say, my flesh, who I am outside of Christ. And listen, they didn't crucify people for talking badly to their parents, right? It was the worst of the worst who got crucified. So my flesh, I have to look into my heart and see my flesh and go, that's what it looks like. That's what it is. It needs to be nailed to the cross, and when I look at the cross, it crushes all my pride because it shows me what I deserve. And it ignites a, a passion, or my heart on fire for God because I see what he did to save me. 
The, the early church used to greet each other. They wouldn't use, hey, what's up? How you doing? They would greet each other by saying, Christ is risen. And then you respond by saying, he's risen indeed. That's how, they, that's, how they, that's how they greet each other. Why is that? Because they recognize that Christ is risen takes care of their entire life. It, it encompasses everything. It summed up everything for him. It, when they're persecuted, Christ is risen. In good times, Christ is risen. And no matter what happens, that we have the ultimate victor on our side that nothing, not even death, could hold him back. And what he wants to accomplish in your heart, in your life, what fruit he wants to grow in your life. And so then how do we crucify the flesh? We fix our heart on Jesus. In the struggles, yeah, we put up defense for sure, but then we pour gas on the fire of the gospel in our hearts. We send out little missionaries to those parts in our heart that still haven't heard the gospel. We recognize, man, why am I living this way? What am I doing? Because I haven't embraced the gospel there. We send out these little missionaries of the gospel to each part of our heart. And what happens is we begin to see Christ and his work on the cross. And it's impossible to see the cross and stay in fear. It's, it's impossible to embrace the cross and stay proud and self-centered. And so when you abide in the gospel, when you plant yourself deeply in the gospel, when you live in it, it produces a different set of things in you. Fruit, Paul calls it. In fact, look at verse 22 and 23. He, he describes this life rooted deeply in the gospel. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We need a changed heart by the gospel for what? For our third point, to produce new life. To produce new life. And this is what Paul's getting at here. He goes, this is the new life. This is what it looks like. When your heart is changed by the gospel, it will look like this. Things will have changed because Jesus showed up. Let's unpack these really quickly. What do we see here? We see, well, there'll be love in your life. And this love, it actually is this, this, this Greek word agape love. It's love for love's sake. It's you love people just because you love them, not because of what they can do for you, the, the opposite of this kind of love is, is fear and self-protection and, and that kind uh, of attitude that leads to abuse and coldness. Now, we can fake love in the flesh. It won't be agape love. It won't be gospel-driven love, but we can have this counterfeit love where it's self-serving. I'll love you for what I get in return. You can see it working itself out in marriage, right? Where, where, well, I can't love my spouse. The husband's saying, I can't love my wife because she doesn't respect me. And only if she respects me, then I love her. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, love your wife like Christ loved the church. How does that look? That means giving your life for her no matter what. Yeah, but you don't know my wife. Yeah, but Jesus knows you, all right? And he still loves you. So it's, it's loving in a way where, where your spouse may not love you well back, but you still, because of God's spirit in you saying, I wanna love you not because of what you do for me, because of what Christ has done for me. I mean, think about how this, this kind of love changes our relationships. Think how it would change your, your friendships, your family. Think how it would change our church. To love like Jesus 
that Jesus, even though he knows your fickleness, your sinfulness, your apathy, he loves you eternally, completely, overwhelmingly. What's that look like to love others that way? And that's gospel-driven love. That's fruit of love being produced. The next one is joy. Joy is this. It's a delight in God and his purposes that go above and beyond our circumstances. So it's this joy in, in who God is and what he's doing that's above our circumstances. Right? This has to be driven by the gospel. This is the kind, let me describe this joy for you. It's that person you meet who, who you look at their life and you're like, man, everything's gone wrong for you. Maybe it's health or career or childlessness or, or, or just stuff's not working. You're like, yeah, but you still have joy. Where's that come from? And they say, listen, I don't have any of those things going well, but I still have Jesus. I mean, that's gospel joy. And the opposite of this would be despair, hopelessness. Now again, listen, this can be counterfeited. Without the gospel, you can produce this, but it'll be a, a happiness that comes more in line with because of the gifts, not so much because of the giver of the gifts. It's a happiness that determines, uh, is only determined by your circumstances, so your mood will go up and down depending on how the waves of your circumstances are going, all right? That's joy in the flesh, not in the gospel, in the spirit. Next, we got peace. It's this confidence. You can just rest in, in God's control and his care more than your own control. And the gospel produces this because you recognize God took care of my greatest problem, my sin, and he's gonna take care of that for eternity. So for sure, he's got my situation right here and now covered. And that's a gospel peace instead of fear and worry. There's Patience. What's patience? Patience is, is dealing with disappointment without exploding, right? It's dealing with disappointment without being in despair or in anger. Even when people hurt you and let you down, you, you still react in love and grace. Again, it's the gospel that drives this. Why? Because you recognize, man, God has shown unbelievable patience with me. The opposite of this, without the gospel, we drift towards resentment towards God and to others. Paul goes on, he talks about kindness. I mean, the, the, this goodness that flows out to other people, again, produced because you recognize God's kindness towards you. The, the opposite of this, where we, where we drift away, we'll drift into envy, where we don't want people to, to have good things happen to them, or we're, we're upset because, well, I don't like that person, I don't like that they're succeeding, or we, we never reach out, we, we drift into apathy, we don't care for people, come alongside them, we don't weep with those who weep or celebrate with those who celebrate. Now, now, you can produce kindness without the, the spirit as well. What, what does that look like? It's, it's I'm gonna do something for the reward. I'm gonna give to get. I'm gonna give because God's gonna reward me or this person's gonna reward me. But listen, that kindness doesn't last. It's the older son, the story of the prodigal son who yelling at his dad, I've served you all this time. I've worked my fingers to the bone and you never give me a party. What's revealed there? Why was he doing it? It wasn't gospel kindness that he was serving. He was serving to get. It goes on, there's goodness. This is goodness that has integrity to it. This is when you peel somebody's goodness away and there's just goodness behind it. Well, let me peel that, but more goodness. Like goodness all the way to the bottom, right? It's just this constant goodness and as opposed to phony and hypocritical. 
says there's faithfulness. Faithfulness is this commitment to God, commitment to others. You're reliable, you're, you're true to your word as opposed to being a fair weather friend or fair weather Christian. No, you're faithful to God, faithful to others. It goes on gentleness. Gentleness could be translated as humility. Humility is just this, this idea of self-forgetfulness. C.S. Lewis defines it this way. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Right? That's humility. That's this gentleness. The opposite then is being self-absorbed. This idea of you're just calling attention to yourself all the time. Like, look what I did. Look what I did. Self-justifying yourself. Rather than being humble and gentle. Now, there's a counterfeit of this too, right? If, if it's not gospel, you can be gentle in the spirit. And it comes across, though, as, as self-absorbed and self-loathing. And then that person's not humble at all. Last one is self-control. Self-control is I'm going to choose what's good and right over what's here and right now. Right? That's somebody saying, listen, I'm going I'm to save sex for what God intended it for my marriage. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to take a shortcut of pornography or just grabbing anybody I can. But there's this self-control. And whether it's saying no to, to sex or food or anger or revenge or maybe the need to be recognized, all this stuff that you can say, you know what, I don't need that because God supplied all that I need. His purposes are greater than, than any concern I have right now that I gotta get something. I'd rather be concerned with what God's concerned with, that self-control. Like the opposite would be impulsive, uncontrolled, you can counterfeit that as well. There are people who are like so disciplined, but they're disciplined by pride, by willpower, not by the Spirit of God. And then Paul ends this whole list. He says, this is what it's gonna look like in you to have the Spirit in you, to have the gospel lived out of you. And he ends at the end of that verse by saying, "Such against such things there is no law. He says, listen, the law can't make this change. Religion can only make you look and act a little nicer. Only the Spirit of God can totally change your heart. And so what do we do? We pursue Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that when we contemplate Jesus, when we reflect on his glory, we're changed day by day, more and more into the image of his glory. I mean, that's what the gospel produces. Now notice something here. Notice it says what's produced is the fruit of the Spirit. Now is, is that plural or singular? The fruit of the Spirit. Now in English, we, we kind of don't mix those up. You wouldn't say, hey, there's a nice bowl of fruits, right? With an S. You'd say it's a bowl of fruit and you mean lots of fruit. But here in the original language, there is a clear distinction between what's plural and what's singular. This is singular. It's not a whole bunch of different fruits. It's one fruit that looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if you find yourself saying, yeah, yeah, I'm walking in the spirit. Like I, I got the love thing covered. Man, I can love so well, but self-control, not great. I, I love the wrong people. Well, that's not the fruit of the spirit in you. You can't, well, I've got these things going on. You need to look to see, is this true gospel-driven fruit? In my life, listen, I, I can be a very gentle person, but it's not always the Spirit of God that makes me gentle. By nature, that's who I am. I can do that in the flesh. Listen, I know God's at work in my life, not just when I'm gentle, but when I can be bold. 
I mean, I can be super gentle and then avoid speaking truth into your life. Is that being spirit-driven? I can be so consumed with the, the fear of man, the fear of people, the fear of your opinion that God's view and opinion gets so small and your opinion gets so big. And I mean, I can be super gentle. I want to, oh, I don't want to preach a hard message because what will they think and, and will they come back? And well, I got to do this well because I want them to think well of me. And it just shows in those moments, I'm telling you, that's my struggle. In those moments, I see how little the gospel has taken root in my heart. And so the whole point of Paul laying this out is not for us to create a scorecard for how well am I doing? I'm filling up in love. I got to fill more up in peace. And no, here's what he's saying. Listen, the gospel stepped in and Jesus has given you a new heart. So those addictions, those things you pursued, those lusts of the flesh, those things you've gone after, the, this, this need for, for control and prestige and winning and, and possessions and comfort. Listen, Paul's saying that's been removed and Jesus offers you the fullness of the fruit of his spirit. All of this. One preacher said it this way. You're only mature as your weakest fruit. You're only as mature as your weakest fruit. Because when the gospel takes root, all these things grow. Now, what we've seen over these past two weeks if we've looked at the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit is that, that what comes out of us depends on where we place the roots of our soul. Is it the Spirit that does the work or am I the one that does the work? Listen, where you place your roots determines what the Spirit will do. Is your, are, are the roots of your heart deep into the, the soil of the gospel? Because here's the thing, you can't take an apple and duct tape it to a maple tree and say, there's an apple tree. It's not an apple tree, it's a maple tree. Only an apple tree is an apple tree, not just because of the fruit you see, but because it's an apple tree in the branch, the trunk, all the way down to the roots, it's an apple tree. The apple comes from the roots up. So this morning, my question again, where are your roots planted? Are you seeking after to plant them into the gospel? Another way of saying this, uh, another pastor said it this way, that, that the tree is full of fruit, and as they drop, you've got a basket. You've got to move to where the fruit is. You've got to be led by the Spirit. And where's the Spirit leading me today? Where will I go? I'm not going to pursue after what I want to in the flesh. I'm going where the Spirit's leading. Where are your roots planted? Where is the fruit falling? As the worship team comes up, that's the question I want to leave us with. Now, here's the thing. As we respond in worship, there are going to be people, people like every Sunday up here who would love to pray with you. If you need to pray with somebody, if God's been pressing it in your heart and, and you need to bring it to somebody, because here's the crazy thing. Listen, about walking in the Spirit. Yes, it's a very personal thing of what it is to, to drive deep into the gospel, but listen, listen, so important, it happens in community. All through this letter, Paul uses plural language. He says, we and, and us, and we live by the Spirit. Let us walk by the Spirit. When he says, you do something, it's in the plural. It's the Texan y'all. That's what he's really saying. It's always plural. It's always in community. This is a community project. I can't walk in the Spirit on my own. I need you in my life. Because there are times when the Spirit's pressing in and the Spirit finally says, dang, I cannot get to Kai. He refuses to listen. So what's the Spirit of God do? He grabs one of you. 
And you do the uncomfortable work of coming and going, okay, here's your blind spot in the gospel that you're not seeing. I need that. Listen, you need that. Eric and I were going through the baptism video. As he was putting it together, we're kind of looking at the, the footage of the video from just a few weeks ago. And then there was one thing. We opened up the file of the baptism videos that have gone on in the past. And there are some in those that no longer worship with us, that have wandered away, that, that sin has grabbed a hold, that life has taken them out. And, and you know what? Every single one of 100% of the ones we looked at, 100% weren't in a small group. They weren't connected any deeper than showing up sometimes on Sunday. There wasn't that, that deep, long connection of, I want to be held accountable. I want to be walked with. We need it. And I wish that I listened better to the Spirit than I do, but I don't, so I need you. I wish that I saw all my sins so clearly, but I don't, so I need you. I wish that I saw where fruit was not being produced or where it was counterfeit fruit, but I don't always see it. I need you. You need me. We need each other. So again, my question is this, where are your roots planted? What's being produced in your life? What's being produced in your marriage? What's being produced in your work? What's being produced in your parenting, in your friendships? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Are you rooted in Christ or are you rooted in something of the flesh? If you're rooted in something other than Christ, it will only produce destruction and strife and brokenness and addictions but if you put your roots deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will produce this fruit of the Spirit. So in your life right now, what are you seeing more of? The works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? Where are your roots? If you're here this morning, you're like, man, this gospel thing's new to me. Your roots this morning could be placed in Christ. When you recognize that you have been created for him and his glory and he's pursuing you even now, but even you Christian, if you look in your life, you're like, man, the roots haven't been going into the gospel. I've been believing lies. I haven't been focusing on who Christ is and who I am in him. You can plant your roots this morning. They can be in Christ. The one you've been searching for your whole life, even if you didn't know it. So this morning, as I pray, I'm gonna ask you to stand as we call out to God. Would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, this morning, we don't stand as those defeated. But Jesus, we need you. We need you for our hearts to change. We need you for fruit to grow. We can't produce this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control that won't come on its own. We need you, Lord God. Would you remind us this morning of our righteousness found in you, Jesus? 
Would you remind those here this morning who know you, would you remind them of their justification, who they are in Christ, and that we would live out of that? We need you for that, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, would you make yourself so clear? Would you draw the hearts of those this morning who don't know you, that they can have roots in you, they can be declared righteous, they don't need to run into sin and shame and guilt any longer, but there's hope. Fill us with your spirit. Produce fruit in us, Jesus. We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.